According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 11. We're getting to the end of the chapter. It may not seem like it, but uh, the author himself is going to run out of time. And in verse 32, he says, What more shall I say, for time will fail me? if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. And so the author himself, I think, realizes that, okay, this is dragged on long enough. Let's go ahead and just lump the last group together and start showing these final principles that apply with these great heroes of the faith. And so really, um, verses 32 through 38 is, uh, is, is, will come pretty quickly for us in, uh, in our notes and uh, then 39 and 40 for the application. And that uh, sets the stage for chapter 12. So I know you chuckle when I say we're approaching the end of the chapter, but, uh, but truly we are. We're uh, nearly to the end of the Moses material. Uh, by faith he, by faith he, by faith he. Today we have by faith they. In verse 29, by faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. And so that wraps up Moses. And so far in this walk through the Bible uh, exercise here that is Hebrews chapter 11, we have now done uh, Genesis and Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy. Uh, By the time we get to uh, the walls of Jericho in verse 30, we're talking about the book of Joshua. And so the walls of Jericho and Rahab the harlot in verses 30 and 31 uh, we're done with the Pentateuch, we're done with the Torah, we're moving on to Joshua, and that's when the, I think, uh, Luke, or whoever the author of Hebrews is, uh, Luke decided, all right, let's, uh, we've, we've made the point, let's wrap it up. And so he, he puts the judges and the kings and the prophets together and, uh, and ends the chapter after that. So here is where we are. Before we do get started, though, let's ask our Father's blessings upon the material that we study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for the blessing we have to assemble. This is a grace provision. And uh, by your grace, Father, we are able to learn the Word of God, to understand it, to apply it. I thank you for the example of Moses and the children of Israel as they were redeemed out of Egypt. They walked through the Red Sea. They did so by faith. And uh, Father, we have important principles to learn here today. Uh, This is... uh, uh, a story that maybe many of us learned in Sunday school in our childhood. This is, this is uh, something that they've made movies about and cartoons. But Father, uh, this is more than this is not just a, a children's story. There, this is, this is the reality of redemption and uh, the requirement to apply faith. So open our eyes to see this, to to learn the doctrine that's here. We thank you. And we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so by faith they, by faith they. And I think uh, the last bit, we were running out of time a week ago in, in Communion Sunday, talking about the Passover. By faith he kept the Passover, kept on keeping the Passover. Year after year after year, uh, he continuously kept Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. And it's that use of the them. Really, it was the faith of Moses that benefited them on that night of the Passover. And it's kind of a curious thing there because it's only his faith that's spoken of in verse 28, but it benefited them at the end of the verse. And then the them is what crosses over now into verse 29. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea. And so now we have to look at them, right? And this is, of course, understood to be the wilderness, the Exodus generation, the whole nation of Israel, all the Jewish people that were in bondage to the Egyptians, every last one of them was redeemed. Every last one of them was freed. I don't think for a minute that all of them were saved. I don't think for a minute that all of them had eternal life. I expect there were quite a few unbelievers in that crowd, but they were all redeemed through the water, whether they were saved or not. 
And that's uh, the principle that applies as we look at Israel as an earthly stewardship and the role that they had as a, as a earthly nation in the midst of other earthly nations. The, the fact that being born again was not a requirement to be a Jew. That uh, to be a Jew, you had to have Jewish parents. And you were born physically into the Jewish nation and were a part of the covenant nation, part of the, the uh, covenant promises that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Whether you were saved or not, whether you died and went to Sheol in the comforting side of things or the, or the tormenting side of things, this was uh, what they dealt with. So it's Moses' faith by which they, the, the angel, did not touch them in verse 28. In verse 29 now, it's their faith. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. And so now we go from Passover to Exodus, to Red Sea crossing. Here we go. Moses' personal faith expands to Israel's national faith for their walk through the Red Sea. A personal faith expands now to a national faith for their walk through the Red Sea. Hebrews 11 describes a faith that Exodus 14 does not portray. And we're going to look at that. We're going to see why is it missing in Exodus 14. In fact, as I read Exodus 14, I don't see faith on the part of the people. But Hebrews 11 says it's there. And we've encountered this on previous examples as well with Sarah as she laughed. But Hebrews 11 says that she had faith. There were other examples with Abraham and we're told that he had faith, that he considered him faithful. And so we get the thought process behind these Old Testament characters being revealed by the Holy Spirit in the canon of Scripture as as Hebrews 11 is inspired. But Hebrews 11 describes a faith that Exodus 14 does not. So let's look back at Exodus 14 and ask ourselves these questions. because, And I think it's also useful in connection with Passover. It was Moses' faith at Passover that caused the uh, the angel to not touch them. Moses' faith in his leadership of the nation blessed his nation as they followed his instructions. Now with the Exodus, let's take a look at chapter 14. You can leave your uh, ribbon or your bubblegum wrapper or your church bulletin in Hebrews 11. We'll be back there shortly. But we can look at Exodus 14 now. And the event itself, if we want to kind of zoom in and not read the entire chapter, we can look at verses 22 through 29. You know, the sons of Israel went through in the midst of the sea on the dry land. And the waters were like a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. You know, to the, to the depths of the sea floor and uh, however deep that water was and to have the water piled up like a wall left and right to be able to see and uh, to see the sea and to walk through there and being looking left and right. And I can imagine, you know, seeing fish and whales and whatever. But, but uh, using that wall of water with only the hand of God holding it and having the faith that that wall was going to hold until you got through was a, a significant event. And, and everyone that walked through, uh, no one carried them. They walked through, that they did the walking. And uh, in, in doing the walking, they were expressing the faith here that, Hebrews 11 is talking about. But it didn't start that way. And before the waters were parted, I would say there was no faith at all. There was a faithlessness that was blaming Moses. And that was actually pretty critical of Moses in this, uh, in this event. So if I back up in chapter 14, Exodus 14, and I look at verse 10. As, uh, as Pharaoh drew near, uh, of course this is after they've departed, after they've plundered uh, the the firstborn were all killed on Passover night and Pharaoh said, okay, you can go. So they plundered the Egyptians and they took all the loot with them and they set out on their journey. But then after they set out on their journey, then uh, the word comes to Pharaoh that they're in a tough spot. And if he wants to go kill them, they're, because they're in that tough spot, he can go kill them. And so this becomes part of the, uh, the background here as well. I think... Uh, Again, I don't want to read the whole chapter for you this morning, but some of these verses I think are are interesting. You'll notice, uh, let's start at the top in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell the sons of Israel 
to turn back and camp before uh, this Pi Hahiroth place between Migdal and the sea. Between Migdal and the sea. In other words, between a rock and a hard place. All right? Between a fortress and the sea. In a spot in which you're boxed in. And uh, you shall camp in front of Baal-Zephon, opposite it, by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, now God tells them to do this. He tells them where to go. Of course, the pillar of cloud is leading them in the fire, and he's telling them where to go. And he's got a plan. He knows what he's doing. And it may not make sense at at, at first. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. We will, and the wilderness has shut them in that they're really boxed in to this place here. You can see a picture of it if you want in the, through the Bible notebook. And they're, uh, they're boxed in there. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And so the, God knows this. He knows that if presented with certain circumstances, this is what the, the person's going to do. He has full foreknowledge of all volitional choices. And so this is what happens. In verse 5, king of Egypt was told the people had fled. Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? We have let Israel go. So he's going to chase them. And this is is all by God's design. Verse 9 says, the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army. And they overtook them camping by the sea beside this Pi-Heroth thing in front of baal Zephon. All right. So this is where it is. I believe too, by the way, it's on the eastern branch, not the western branch, that it's on the eastern branch, the Gulf of Aqaba branch of the Red Sea is where I think is the best understanding of this crossing. So as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now we read that and we say, okay, wait a minute now. I'm comparing Scripture with Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed, so God's not lying in Exodus, and God's not lying in Hebrews. But if Exodus says one thing and Hebrews says something else, I've got to ask myself, how are both of these true? Because it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. Both the Exodus account is accurate and the Hebrews account is accurate because God wrote them both and God does not lie. I mean, these are just fundamental principles of hermeneutics. They were afraid. They became very frightened. And so they called out, cried out to the Lord. And you might say, well, that's perfect. Crying out to the Lord is exactly what you should do when you're afraid. When I'm afraid, I will trust in Him. And so, yes, they have fear. They make fear a matter of prayer. And it's all by faith, so it's a good thing. Well, wait a minute. Look what they say to Moses. And you kind of, you get the attitude of their heart. They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? (laughs) You know? And I love this because I speak fluent sarcasm. This This is sarcasm. Are there no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to bury us? This is where we're going to die. Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? So, is, you know, I don't think we have to read between the lines here. We can read verse 10 and read verse 11 and we can conclude that what Moses is writing about here in the book of Exodus is that there is no faith on the part of Israel. Not yet. I don't see any faith yet in verse 10 or verse 11. I see sarcasm, I see bitterness, I see resentment, and it continues. But Hebrews says it is by faith that they walk through the Red Sea. So we have to now find that here in this chapter. Verse 12 is the I told you so verse. Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They would rather live slaves than to die free men, so to speak. Um, They would rather, they would reject their Redeemer. They would reject their Deliverer. They would reject their Messiah because they would rather be slaves to the Gentiles. I believe uh, the same, same decision was made when they crucified Christ and said, we have no king but Caesar. And when they said, release Barabbas and crucify Christ, 
They would rather be slaves under the Gentiles than to serve their Redeemer. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. And so if something sparks their faith, we can start to look at this message. We can start to look at Moses' faith and how a personal faith expands to a national faith. How is it that a husband's faith can sustain his wife? How is it the parent's faith can sustain their children? How is it if a pastor's faith can sustain a flock? If in fact there are those that are weak in faith, but they see an example of someone leading them through the test, that's walking with them through the test. And we have an illustration right here. Do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish. Moses says, I'm not your Savior. God's your Savior. I'm just His tool. He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will uh, fight for you while you keep silent. Now, we get a rebuke in this message here too. So at some point, when I'm looking at 10 through 12, I don't see any faith. But when they walk through the sea on dry ground, by the time we get to verse 22, when the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land, Hebrews 11 tells us they did so by faith. And it was their faith, plural, not just Moses' faith, singular. By faith, they walked through the Red Sea on dry land. And so now it's curious to me as I look at the the verses in between, verse 12 and verse 22, and what do I see? I see Moses, I see his faith, I see his preaching, I see his rebuking, telling the faithless Jews to stop being afraid, assuring them that the Lord is uh, providing. And then quite a remarkable rebuke in verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? And I think the you there, the all you there, um, is not necessarily Moses personally, but more of the people that were uh, complaining and crying out to the Lord. Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. And in, in any event, however we understand that, it's curious because it almost is a rebuke to say, now is not the time to be asking me, now is the time to be doing what you were told to do. In other words, you can pray too long after you've been told what to do, if, if the direction is clear and you've already prayed about it and he's already answered it and he puts you where he wants you and this is work set before you, if you want to stop and pray about it again, that's a delaying tactic. That's, a, that's like telling mom and dad you need a drink of water before bedtime. All right? You can stall and delay all you want, but you know what you, what you were told to do. The child was told, go to bed. And this delaying tactic is, uh, is sin. The nation was told to be here at this time and to cross the Red Sea. (laughs) All right. Now, it may not make sense, but if that's what God told them to do, then that's what God told them to do. And sometimes faith works like that. And so the Lord tells Moses, hey, raise up your staff, and then they'll see what you haven't seen yet. So as for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. And so Moses knows what to do now. Now he knows the mechanism for how it is they're going to cross. I mean, maybe they could have walked on water like Jesus walked on water. Or they could have done, who knows what else could have happened. But this was the design. Just raise up your staff, the water will part, and you can walk on through. And... uh, So this is the the mechanism for how this happens. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army through the chariots and the horsemen. Now it's curious to me, Israel went through on faith. The Egyptians entered in, not on faith, they entered in on a hardened heart basis. And that's curious to me because I think sometimes we look at things and we get confused because, well, they're doing the same thing this person's doing. Person A is doing this, person B is doing this. They're both doing the same thing. But one of them's doing it by faith. And the other one's doing it with a hardened heart. And uh, the Lord's going to bring one of them through the, the Red Sea, so to speak. <laughs> 
And the other one meant walk in, but he's not walking out. Okay, that water is going to come crashing down. Is how this. How the, I'm not giving it away, am I? You've, you've heard the story before. Okay, you've seen the movie. All right. Whew, I was afraid I was going to. Spoiler alert: that uh, you didn't know the end of the story here. But God says this: uh, they're going to go in after them, and uh, I will be glorified. So, verse 19: the angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. Provides a little blocking mechanism there. The pillar of cloud uh, moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was a cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near to the other all night. And so uh, they're able to set out. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night. And turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. And that's a miracle too—the fact that the surface was uh, was dry and capable of not just a bunch of muck and mud and whatever. So the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. That's verse twenty-two, and Hebrews eleven tells us, and verse twenty-nine says, "It was by faith they saw it divided, but they still had to left, right, left, march on through and." And it was a faith mechanism that impelled them forward as they, as they walked. The waters were like a wall on the left and the right. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. And at the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army out of the Egyptians into confusion. See, there was no confusion when Israel marched to this dead-end spot. No confusion at all. They were where he wanted them and, and they, they were going where he told them. But here now there's confusion. And he caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. They finally figured it out here. We're working against Yahweh. So the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over the chariots, over the horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. And it's curious. And every once in a while, archaeology, and they find a chariot wheel into the water there, and they get all excited about it. And then other skeptics come along and say, well, come on, no big deal. And it could have, a ship could have sunk, or blah, 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 or who knows. In any event, the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Water can be very destructive, but water can also be very protective. And, and God can use water. We can use water. We can channel water to very... Uh, effective and, and useful applications. Now, Hebrews 11 describes a faith that 10 through 12 does not portray. I mean, clearly it's not there, but it got there. How did it get there? I think it got there with the rebuke and it got there with Moses preaching at him and it got there with them seeing the hand of God on the waters. At some point they repented between verse 12 and verse 22. Maybe we have another clue in Psalm 106 because we have another divine commentary. You know, it's always best to compare Scripture with Scripture. And if you think, well, maybe Pastor Bob's got a strange opinion, um, well, go read Psalm 106, because God wrote that. Okay? And you can't say that God has a strange opinion. This is God's own opinion about what God wrote in other parts of the Bible. That's why we compare Hebrews with Exodus. We compare Psalms with Exodus. This is an event that's, that's featured throughout the Old and New Testament. It's a well-known event with a lot of doctrinal applications. Psalm 106, part of a confession in verse 6, we have sinned like our fathers, we have committed iniquity, we have behaved wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindness, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. It was a rebellion. We were reading it in verses 10 through 12 and said, well, clearly it's a lack of faith. God's commentary says, oh, more than that, it was a full-out rebellion. Because they saw nine plagues. They saw the tenth plague. They had even survived the Passover. They had obeyed Moses. It wasn't their faith. It was Moses' faith at the Passover. And they obeyed his instructions. And they saw the death of the Egyptian firstborn. 
but they still rebelled by the banks of the Red Sea. It's not my opinion. It's Scripture that says uh, they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name that he might make his power known. Their benefit, I'm reading from Psalm 106 and verse 8. He saved them for the sake of his name that he might make his power known. Thus he rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up and he led them through the deeps as, as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of the one who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. Now they had been in rebellion until the waters parted. But when the waters parted, they walked through by faith. Hebrews 11 says it's by faith. And so um, the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. They quickly forgot. And then they quickly forgot his works. They're going to rebel again at Mara in, in, uh, in the wilderness. So we got commentary. Hebrews sheds light on Exodus. Psalms sheds light on Exodus. Many of these passages shed light on Exodus. In fact, the Red Sea faith testimony impacted Israel's enemies for years following this event. The Exodus event, the Red Sea faith testimony, it impacted Israel's enemies for years following this event. And in some respects, God bore more fruit with the enemies than he did with his own people. Because his own people, they got to the other side, they sang a song, they, uh, they were happy for a little while until the water was bitter, and then they started grumbling again. And ten times they're going to test him in the wilderness. And so some of these examples too, I think, are, are telling. Joshua 2.10. This we'll come back to next week when we look at Jericho and Rahab. So preview... She hides him up, the two spies, she hides him up on her roof and she says to the man, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond, beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you, for the Lord your God. He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And this is the faith of Rahab here who's saved, who has a fear of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. And we see the impact that the Red Sea has. This Red Sea faith testimony. Of course, our kids learn it in Sunday school and we, we watch the cartoons and whatever the adaptations we have. Charlton Heston was a pretty famous role and, and all the other things. But let's recognize that there is a tremendous theology that comes with redemption that we, we should be preaching to this lost and dying world. And Exodus is a great way to do it. It can have an impact even in the heart of an unbeliever. Judges 11 and verse 16 This is years later, in the, t- in the time of Jephthah. So we have the testimony of, a, of, a, of a, the harlot with Rahab, and now we have a judge who is the son of a harlot in Jephthah. And uh, in Judges chapter 11, you find out in verse 1, uh, the son of... Uh, he was a Jephthah the Gileadite, was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. And uh, so what's he going to do? And, and how does that impact his ministry? But down to verse 16. Um, so he sent messengers to the king of the sons of Ammon, and they said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the sons of Ammon. For when they came up from Egypt, and Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, please let us pass through. And he goes on to, to give the history on this. But the point being is the Red Sea is referenced there and it has an impact. It has an impact in Israel's enemies. In this case, it's the Ammonites that uh, Jephthah is preaching to, giving them a doctrinal study and a history class at the same time. 
even in Stephen's day, in Acts chapter 7, this is after Jesus is raised, and this is in the New Testament time. And here's Stephen preaching to a bunch of Jews in Jerusalem, and he references the Exodus. It's fundamental to not only Israel's national history, but it's, it's, the, it's the basis for them being a nation. They are a redeemed people. And so that's a big deal. Acts chapter 7 and verse 36. So this Moses whom they disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? He is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. And this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. And so this becomes his testimony. And then it goes from Moses to Jesus when he gives the prophecy there as it relates to Jesus, the prophet like Moses that was spoken of. So the Red Sea faith testimony impacted Israel's enemies for years following the event. The Red Sea faith testimony encouraged all future generations of Israel. The Red Sea faith testimony encouraged all future generations of Israel. We'll see that in Joshua. We see that in Nehemiah. And it was featured in several of the Psalms. We've already read Psalm 106, but you've got it in Psalm 66. You've got it in Psalm 78. You've got it in Psalm 136. That it became a focus for their hymn writing. It's the same thing too. If you do, do you like Southern gospel music, gospel quartets? They're constantly mentioning the Red Sea, the Lion's Den, the Fire Furnace. I mean, these are they're, they're featured in probably nine out of every ten gospel quartet songs out there because the doctrine that they portray. God is our, not just our creator, He's our redeemer. He's our savior. And so we shouldn't be surprised that the Red Sea shows up in, uh, in all of these psalms. Now, Joshua 24. We know this chapter, right? This is the choose you this day whom you will serve chapter at the end of Joshua's life. They had survived. They'd gone through the Exodus. They survived the wilderness. They went through the conquest. We're talking about the next generation now as Joshua's getting ready to die. And uh, he says here in verse uh, 5, I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst. And afterward, I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea. And Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. But when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your own eyes saw what he did in Egypt and you lived in the wilderness for a long time. So this is their testimony. And as a nation, they could look back to this event and they know that they are a redeemed people, that they have a covenant with the Lord their God, that they function under the law that he gave them at Mount Sinai. They are the people that walked through the Red Sea, that were redeemed out of bondage. So it was a faith testimony to encourage all future generations. In Nehemiah chapter 9, say, whoever reads Nehemiah? Well, the exiles did. After they were carried away to Babylon, after they had to live in Babylon for 70 years, when they were allowed to return back, Zerubbabel brought a wave back, Ezra brought a wave back, Nehemiah brought a wave back. They were swept away in three sweepings and they were brought back in three returnings. The Z-E-N returnings. Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. You can think of them as the Zen returnings when they came back from Babylon. And in those Zen returnings, they needed a lot of encouragement. And the Exodus provided that for them, along with all of God's history of faithfulness. So Nehemiah Nehemiah chapter 9. And uh, on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. And the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the uh, iniquities of their fathers. 
And while they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. So if you think our services tend to go long, just think again. We could do a fourth of the day in Bible study, a fourth of the day in prayer confession. All right. And then the Levites and these guys with the hard to pronounce names. And then they get the preaching and they review the faithfulness of Israel. The whole history of Israel is how faithless they were and how faithful God was. And so um, it's described here. Down to verse 9, You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against his servants and all the people of the land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground. Every time it's mentioned, the crossing was on dry ground. Beyond the fact that the water was pushed aside, the muck and the mud and the the mire at the bottom of the sea was hardened. It became dry as as a highway for them to march across. So, uh... Yeah, we have the promise there. Nehemiah chapter 9. And their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters. So it was a testimony for all future generations. It was featured in several of their psalms. I think I'll skip these and save some time on this. But some of these are so good though. Psalm 66. Psalm 66 in verse 6. This is a chance to shout joyfully, to sing praises. All the earth will worship you and sing praises. Come and see the works of God who is awesome in His deeds towards the Son of Man. You know, come and see. Behold, God loves what He does. And when He shows His glory, He wants us to observe it and testify. I mean, if you're never in a tough spot, how does He glorify His name in bringing you through your suffering and bringing you through your affliction? He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There let us rejoice in Him. There's actually two crossings too, by the way. The Red Sea crossing and then the Jordan River crossing. And some people say that was a tougher miracle than the Red Sea crossing. Because when you're parting a a bay or a body of water like that, that's one thing. But the river is a flowing river that's just constantly coming down from the north. And so when Joshua parted the Jordan River, some folks say that was a bigger miracle than Moses parting the Red Sea. Because of the water that kept coming from the north, flowing down into that, into that uh, gap as, uh, as they passed through on dry ground. Anyway, God did both miracles anyway, so it's hard to say one's bigger than the other, but there you have it. Psalm 78, verse 7, verse 9. No, let's see. Psalm 78, verse 13 and verse 53. A masculine of Asaph. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your hearts to the words of my mouth. And uh, he walks through here a, a history of Israel and what Israel can look forward to for all generations so that a generation to come will know these things. And um, is this, is when we talked about the rebellion, remember when Psalm 106 talked about the rebellion? This one... Uh, similar says they did not keep the covenant of God. It says in verse 10, refused to walk in his law. They forgot his deeds and his miracles that he had shown them. He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of Zone. He divided the sea, caused them to pass through. He made the waters stand up like a heap. He led them with a cloud by day and, and all night with a light of fire, split the rocks in the wilderness, gave them abundant drink. All these things that he did, yet they can still continue to sin against him. So that's Psalm 78. Psalm 106, we've read already. Verse 7, verse 9, verse 22. I don't think we got all the way down to verse 22, but you can look that up. Psalm 136. To drive the point home. 
Psalm 136, verse 13, verse 14, verse 15. This is one of my favorite psalms out of all of them. I don't know. There's 150 to pick, so how do you pick one all-time favorite, right? Like Psalm 23 or Psalm 119 or Psalm... I mean, there's some good ones. But Psalm 136, okay, if it's not my all-time favorite, it's definitely top five. And look at every single verse. You got 26 verses here. His loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. God chose to repeat himself 26 times in every verse of this psalm. And I love it. Nothing wrong with repetition. Nothing wrong with pounding a point home. Verse 10 says, To him who smote the Egyptians in their firstborn, for his loving kindness is everlasting, and brought Israel out from their midst, for his loving kindness is everlasting. I mean, this is like one of those responsive hymns that you, you could sing, you know, with a, uh, different camp songs and different Christian songs that you would sing and you would have one line and then the, the women would repeat with an echo, you know, uh, hallelujah, and, and you go back and forth with, uh, with a different singing on that style. And this, this every line is followed with His loving kindness is everlasting. He brought Israel out from their midst. His loving kindness is everlasting. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for His loving kindness is everlasting. To Him who divided the Red Sea asunder, for His loving kindness is everlasting. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for His loving kindness is everlasting. But He overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, for His loving kindness is everlasting. And it goes on to talk about their wilderness journeys and the battles with Sihon and Og and everything else. His loving kindness is everlasting. Red Sea Faith Testimony. In addition to the memorial, in addition to the reminders, yes, God's the God of the Exodus. Okay? He's the God that parted the Red Sea. I think He's strong enough to handle my problems. That's an encouragement. We can always look back to what God has done and realize it's the same God today that was the god back then he can still do these things we're good with that beyond the comfort and encouragement that comes through those kind of studies are the prophetic studies that what he's done is nothing compared to what he's about to do and in fact what he's going to do you realize in the millennium they're no longer going to say as the lord lives who brought us up out of the land of egypt what they're going to say is as the lord lives who gathered us from the four corners of the earth. That's going to be their new expression in the millennium. It's like, you know, the Exodus was just one crossing out of one nation. In the second advent, the gathering of Israel is from every nation. From every nation on the globe, the Jewish people get gathered with an outstretched arm and wrath poured out. And so the angelic conflict prophecies are... I think, become uh, really a, a powerful study. So in I, Isaiah 51, this is how Isaiah adapts the Red Sea history and then weaves it into a prophecy. You know what I'm talking about? Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51. a lot of attention getters in this chapter verse one says listen to me verse two says look verse four says pay attention all right so i think there's probably an important message coming up here and um pay attention to me O my people that's verse four give ear to me O my nation for a law will go forth from me and i will set my justice for a light of the peoples of the nations now, they're already under a law, Mosaic law, but he's about to give them another law, kingdom law, in the millennium, and it's going to go forth to the nations. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. My arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait for me. And for my arm, they will wait expectantly. Let me get down to where this is going here. Down to verse 9. Awake, awake. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, awake. So this is the response now. God has made promises. There's a kingdom coming. 
And now the people are excited about it and they're inviting him to do what he said he was going to do. And uh, yeah, I passed over six through eight. That's unfortunate, but um, well, let me grab those here real quickly. It says, um, for my arm, they will wait expectantly. Those are the nations, the coastlands, not just the Jews. Verse 6 says, lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath, for the sky will vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, its inhabitants will die in like manner. So when they go through the tribulation, almost everybody, I mean, there's a lot of death, a lot of wrath. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not wane. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. Most important thing for believers in the tribulation is to be listening to the voice of God, to be listening to the Word of God. A people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of man, nor be dismayed in their revilings. For the moth will eat them like a garment, and the grub will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. All the millennial generations, and then a thousand fullness of time generations. And so this is the promise. They're going to go through hell. They're going to go through the tribulation is going to make the plagues of Egypt seem like nothing. The Red Sea is going to be forgotten because of what they survive in the tribulation. And so now the response, this is where positive volition sings out to God and says, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago, that is the generations of eternity. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Oh my goodness. I can't preach that today, but just make a note. This is one of the, the, the fall of Satan passages. This is not the Jericho harlot. It looks like the Jericho harlot, right? It's spelled differently in Hebrew, so the Hebrew people will not be confused between Rahab the dragon and Rahab the harlot. So the, the Jericho harlot who hid the spies up on her roof, that's a different spelling than the Rahab, the dragon, who was cut to pieces when he led a rebellion against God in the, in the generations of eternity. Basically the angelic earth before Adam. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deeps, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? Now this is such a powerful prophecy. It goes back to the fall of Satan. It incorporates the uh, exodus of Israel out of Egypt. It puts that crossing in an angelic context as well. Remember, the ten plagues were designed to, to uh, demonstrate the impotence of the Egyptian pantheon. The Egyptian gods were exposed as being weak, uh, impotent. All ten plagues addressed an Egyptian god. So here he is, in a sense, uh, piercing the dragon yet again in the exodus of Israel. And then uh, the waters of the great deep who made the depths uh, of the sea as a pathway for the redeemed to cross over. Now that's history. What about moving forward in prophecy? So the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. And this is why it bugs me when Christians sing, we're marching to Zion, we're marching to Zion, because that's not our prophecy. We didn't walk through the Red Sea. Why are we marching to Zion? Israel walked through the Red Sea. Israel will be marching to Zion. Israel will be walking up the holy highway. Israel in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So the ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. The everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. I, even I, am the one who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and of the Son of Man who is made like grass? You have forgotten the Lord, your Maker. He's your Maker. He's your Redeemer. And He's going to bring you into the kingdom. This is the promise that Israel has to look forward to. So a prophecy of Israel's coming kingdom describes the Red Sea crossing with an angelic conflict context, piercing Rahab the dragon, 
That's a, that's a deep realm right there when you go into those kind of studies. The Apostle Paul employs the Red Sea event as a metaphor for baptism. And he contrasts Israel and the church in a very tremendous way. I want to make sure we're solid on this because there's so much confusion out there with replacement theology and people that fail to appreciate why the Old Testament is the Old Testament and the New Testament is the New Testament. Why it is that the Hebrew Scriptures present a covenant people of God in earthly terms and why the Greek canon of Scripture presents the covenant people of God in heavenly terms. Because in fact, we are not the same people. The church is not Israel, never has been, never will be. And if, you, if you're caught up in a theological system whereby uh, Israel is, is considered to be the Old Testament church, and where the church is considered to be New Testament Israel, then you're reading a systematic theology or you're listening to a, to a preacher that's caught up in some terrible, terrible truth. And it's, uh, it's heterodox, if not unorthodox. It's, it's flawed. It's wrong. And in my understanding, it approaches the, the, the degree of blasphemy. It appro- because it makes God a liar is what it does. And so it approaches it. And, and, and I'm hesitant to say it quite in this harsh way, but I, I believe that there are believers that love God that are just misguided. And that they're saved, and they're in churches, and they're, they're serving the Lord, and God bless them for serving the Lord. But it hurts me to, to know that they're enslaved in this replacement theology evil. Because the church is not Israel, never can be, never will be, never was. If, uh, if, if we didn't walk through the Red Sea, why do I think we're going to walk up this holy highway and uh, fulfill this other prophecy? We had no part in that prophecy. It's the same thing with the New Covenant. The New Covenant is designed to replace the Mosaic Covenant. We were never under the Mosaic Covenant. Why would we get the New Covenant? We don't. The New Covenant is made with Israel in the Millennial Kingdom after the Second Advent. And as long as we keep things straight, we do well. And so 1 Corinthians 10, I think, is a marvelous text to use to do just this. I think in 1 Corinthians 10, you can learn by analogy. You can learn by analogy. And this is common to the human experience. You learn by analogy. And things that are analogous are not equal. But they're similar enough that you can, by analogy, they're similar enough that you can adapt what you learned in that case and then make application over in this case. That's what you call when you learn by analogy. So circumstances can be analogous. Circumstances can be analogous. It's like little siblings that are growing up. You get brothers and sisters and, and little siblings growing up and it's analogous. Not the same, but it's analogous. And so, I, in my opinion here, purely opinion, you can fire me if you want, the, um, the benefit that you have, siblings who have siblings are the best benefited for, in adult capacity, in relating to girls, for example, if they had a sister or two. And so they, they know that girls are different and they learn some things about sisters and they learn some things about, about uh, you know, how you, you can make them cry and how they can get in trouble and how other things can happen. And all of those terrible, beautiful blessings of childhood because they're analogous. You see what I'm saying? It's not a true equivalency. And just if you had a little sister doesn't mean you're going to be a good husband. But you've got some experience over the, the, the poor schmuck that never had a sister that never learned how to talk to girls. It was never comfortable around girls. So you just kind of, okay, all right. You got, it's analogous is all I'm saying. Uh, I'm done with that. Israel is not the same as the church, but there, it is analogous. There is an analogy that we can draw because they were an identified people group. We are an identified people group. They were a redeemed people. We are a redeemed people. You see why it's analogous? There are significant similarities whereby because of those similarities, 
we can glean principles and say, okay, we want to learn from that so that we don't make the same mistake over here. And that's, Scripture does this all the time. Judah in the south was supposed to learn from Israel in the north because their experience was analogous. All right. So in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. The Exodus doctrine, we should not be ignorant of Exodus doctrine, even though we're church-age saints. We still have the Hebrew Scriptures. And we make our analogous applications. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In a sense, he's using the word baptize here like we do in terms of identification. They all identified with Moses. Moses was their savior, their deliverer, their redeemer. Their prophet, their priest, their king. Moses was a type of Christ. And he brings them forth. And they were all baptized into Moses. And this is where the analogy serves as a useful counterpoint. Because that's different from our, our baptism. We're baptized by the Holy Spirit. They weren't baptized by the Holy Spirit. But they walked through the Red Sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food. They got to eat manna in the wilderness for 40 years. We get spiritual food. So there's an analogy. Okay? Because of the similarity, we're not eating manna, but they had a spiritual food, so to speak, in the manna they were given. We have spiritual food in the Word of God as it's taught. So Paul is using this by way of analogy. And, and they all drank from the same spiritual drink. Moses struck the, wa- the rock. Water comes out. Fresh water. They got to drink. We have a metaphor. There's an analogy for us. We get to drink. Of course, we have John 4. We understand Jesus Christ, the living water. And when we drink of this water, we we never thirst again. We have eternal life. So we have the analogies that teach us what we need to learn. They were drinking from a spiritual rock, which followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now that should get our attention. That right there should grab our attention and say, "Uh uh-oh, wait a minute. Because a covenant people, a redeemed people, a people for whom God worked mightily on their behalf, with most of them he was not well pleased. And we have to ask ourselves, is he pleased with us? Because we're a covenant people, we're a redeemed people. He has worked a mighty deed to save us. He sent his son to die on the cross for us. Is he happy with us? Or with most of us, is he not well pleased? We have to ask that question. And these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. By analogy, we learn from their example because our accountability is more severe. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they stood up to play. It's a sexual term. Moses is up there getting the tablets and they're down there fornicating by the golden calf. Nor let us act immorally. That's another fornication term as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. They're having a big national orgy. (laughs) And my hero went in there with a spear. Phineas is a great hero, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron. And he he jabs those two uh, men and women in the act and put a stop to it. And it stopped the plague in the whole nation. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. And these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. In other words, every analogy, every Old Testament shadow comes to a substance fulfillment, comes to a substance understanding, and we're the substance, we're in Christ upon whom the ends of the ages has come. And so the him who thinks he stands, take heed that he does not fall. This is a marvelous thing. And it comes, what does it come from? This whole concept was sparked by the Red Sea event. The Red Sea event becomes the, 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 the genesis, the seed for this, all this doctrine. What it means to be a covenant redeemed people. What it means to be delivered from bondage. 
and now walk in such a way that he's pleased with you and not displeased. So we have a book of Hebrews so we can walk by faith and enter into his rest because with most of them he was not well pleased. All right, well then here is the Red Sea crossing. We'll come back next week and uh, the walls of Jericho will come down. Something else the gospel quartet groups like to sing about, you know? Walk around seven times, blow a trumpet, and the walls come tumbling down. In which also Rahab was rescued. Rahab the harlot, by the way. And, and I hope we're, we're relaxed about this. I think there's a sensitivity issue. A lot of believers want to get squishy with it and say, well, you know, she was a former harlot. She was retired. She, was, she got saved. The woman who used to be a harlot before she got saved, and now she... No. No. She's Rahab the harlot, still engaged in that occupation. The spies hid in the whorehouse when it comes to the roof where they, she put them up there and uh, the activity there. Anyway, we'll preach it for what it says and uh, thank the Lord that he's so blunt when he uh, talks about the rescue of his people. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for truth. I thank you for all the examples from, I mean, we've been looking at it from Cain and Abel to to Enoch, to Abraham and Sarah, and now Moses, and all. And now we're into the Exodus and Joshua and the conquest and the, uh, the spies that were hiding on the roof. We'll be talking about them next week. And in all these things, Father, there's so many applications that we can learn from and make ourselves in the, in the church age. I pray that we appreciate the church for what it is. I thank you that in our Colossians class, you're giving us such a powerful uh, church doctrine on, on the body, the head and the body and the church. Father, uh, these, these classes are wonderful. Thank you for bringing them all together in just such a marvelous way. I pray that we can learn from them and make the application. And I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.